This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now with information on news, sports, politics, technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community. And that community includes me. But we don't want to do all the talking. We want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on something you saw in the news? Is something affecting your community? Now is your chance to be heard. Listen to Now with Dave Brown wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Black Lives Matter acknowledges that black poverty and marginalization exist. It recognizes that black communities are disproportionately targeted by police and overrepresented in prisons. It identifies that black women bear the brunt of policies that affect families and communities. Black trans people in a heteropatriarchal society face both further marginalization and fetishization. Black disabled people are forced into boxes and labeled through a range of coercive and normalizing state practices. And like many recent social movements, Black Lives Matter has had its message amplified and dispersed using social media. Over platforms like Twitter and Instagram, the hashtag BLM movement has changed the public discourse around racism and police brutality. Today, we discuss hashtag activism. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. And today, my guest is Dr. Moya Bailey, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Cultures, Societies and Global Studies and the Program in Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Northeastern University. Her work focuses on Black women's use of digital media to promote social justice as acts of self-affirmation. She recently co-authored Hashtag Activism with Sarah J. Jackson and Brooke Foucault-Wells. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So what is Hashtag Activism? Hashtag Activism is a network of different ways that people have utilized hashtags on Twitter and beyond to create and uh, foment social movement. So some of the hashtags that I think are really popular that you mentioned even are hashtag Black Lives Matter, which really for a lot of people made them aware of some of the injustices that Black people have been facing in this country for centuries. And one of the really important hashtags that uh, really sparked and made this movement go forward was, again, hashtag Black Lives Matter, but also the hashtags of some of the people who have been uh, killed extrajudiciously by um, peace, uh, by the police. So I'm thinking about the death of Mike Brown, hashtag Mike Brown, the death of Trayvon Martin, hashtag Trayvon Martin, and most recently, uh, hashtag George Floyd and hashtag Breonna Taylor which have really been uh, efforts for people to try and make sense of 
what is happening uh, when Black people interact with the police. One of the things that people may not realize is that there is a growing field of studies and scholarship around digital media and the use of social media. Your book, Hashtag Activism, is part of that emerging scholarship. When did you decide you wanted to study this and write a book about it? Ah, so I had the good fortune uh, to be at Northeastern with my colleagues, Brooke Foucault-Wells, and at the time, Sarah J. Jackson was in the communications department at Northeastern. And the two of them had already started working on a project looking at the hashtag MyNYPD. And this was a hashtag that the New York Police Department put out, hopefully trying to do some uh, public relations work. So they encouraged people to tweet their stories of MyNYPD, assuming that uh, people would tweet wonderful things about their interactions with New York's <laughs> finest. But of course, quickly, uh, that hashtag was taken over by people who had negative experiences with the New York Police Department. And so uh, you could see everyday people showing, uh, using images and telling their stories of police brutality at the hands of the New York Police Department. And as they were working on that article, I was actually working on an article about hashtag girls like us created by Janet Mock that is used primarily within the trans women community to talk about issues that are concerning their lives. And it has become a really important network for trans women in terms of sharing information about doctors, uh, sharing activist information, et cetera. And so we realized that we were both, or that Sarah and Brooke were working on this book on this article about my NYPD and I was working on hashtag girls like us. And so we started to talk and think that there's something here about hashtags more generally. And that's how we decided to write the book together. Mm -hmm. Amazing synergy. Talk about being at the right place at the right time, right? Exactly. Um, now I, know the, I know the book was set to launch uh, or has launched earlier this year. And I'm wondering if the pandemic has had any effect at all on the way you launched your book. Oh, absolutely. So we had a slate of book talks that were lined up and we only got to do one of them. So our one and only in-person book launch was March 3rd, just at the top of the pandemic in New York at the Strand Bookstore. And after that event, all of our other events have been virtual. And we've also seen as a result of both the pandemic and um, the rebellions and uprisings that have been happening around the country after uh, George Floyd's tragic death, that we, the book has really taken off in terms of people paying attention to it. And so mm -hmm. it's this weird moment of, you know, again, right place, right time, but also tragically right place, wrong, right time, because there's mm -hmm. so many people um, who have been negatively impacted by the police. And here we are again talking about hashtags and hashtag activism because of some violence that has occurred to everyday people. I do follow your work on Twitter. And I saw on Twitter that you mentioned that the book has become so relevant as Black people themselves have become hashtags. But I think a lot of people may have seen the marches in the street um, or go by their windows, and they may not understand the degree to which social media has played a role in the most recent wave of Black Lives Matter protests. What can you tell us about that? 
Yes. And even before this most recent moment, uh, we can see even comparing what happened initially after the death of Mike Brown and how Black Lives Matter moved to this current moment, uh, there's a different way that people are talking about some of the issues. And I think that is the direct result of social media activism and the way that language has spread. So Black Lives Matter was so derided and was something that you know, was immediately uh, condemned. But now in this current moment, we are seeing corporations actually say Black Lives Matter, which we did not see just six years ago. Additionally, we're seeing other corporations actually take responsibility for some of their stereotypical images. I don't know if you've seen um, Aunt Jemima Pink Pancake Mix has decided to, you know, change their name and the iconography they use on their packaging. So these are real examples of how the language of social media activists have shaped and transferred into the mainstream and are rewriting the narrative. Additionally, the language of defund the police and talk of reparations. You know, I was uh, in the car earlier this morning and I was listening to NPR and uh, they had Sandy Darity, Professor Sandy Darity on talking about reparations and what that might look like. And so to have that as part of a national discussion to, to be taken seriously, to me, is a testament to what... Black Lives Matter has been able to accomplish in terms of Mm -hmm. changing the public narrative in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to Moya Bailey, co-author of Hashtag Activism and an assistant professor at Northeastern University. Moya, in in a few minutes that we have before we go to the break, I really want to turn to the work of Janet Mock because I'm a huge fan of Janet's book, Redefining Realness, as I read a couple of years ago. And Janet talks a lot about the fact that Uh, Social media provides trans women not only a space to talk about everyday experiences, but also a place to celebrate accomplishments and create the sense of online community. Have you noticed this in your research as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think there's just a plethora of projects and ways of amplifying the voices of trans women that became possible because of Janet's creation of the hashtag Girls Like Us. So initially, Janet created the hashtag to advocate for uh, beauty queen Jenna Takalova, who was being denied uh, the ability to participate in the Miss Universe conference, um, Miss Universe pageant. And that activism led to this hashtag Girls Like Us existing beyond that moment because people found it so useful and a great way for trans women to connect to one another. And one of the beautiful stories that comes out of this is Janet Mock's own use of the hashtag connected um, actresses, uh, Jen Richards and Angelica Ross, who were roommates in Chicago for a little Mm -hmm. bit before working together on the YouTube series, uh, her story, which actually got one of the first uh, Emmy nominations for a web series. And so there's been this whole proliferation of work that has been possible and connections that have been forged because of this one little hashtag. Mm -hmm. And we've seen 
trans women become much more visible within mainstream media as well. Um, and of course, this is a double-edged sword because visibility on the one hand uh, is very powerful and means that these are members of our community who cannot be ignored and cannot be denied. But at the same time, it has also led to more attacks and more violence on trans women because they are more visible. And so this uh, kind of catch-22 is something that uh, we're still trying to figure out. And there's this wonderful documentary just released on Netflix called Disclosure, where trans women are talking about, you know, the long history of trans women in the media if people, you know, are actually paying attention to it and what that media actually means for trans women's lives. As much as I can appreciate that social media and hashtag activism has made a huge difference, let me push back just a little bit and ask you about the digital divide. Isn't it true that a lot of poor and racialized people don't actually have access to the internet? Or the fact that a lot of online spaces operate like echo chambers. So you're really just speaking to people who already share your beliefs. How, do your, how does your research around online activism square with some of those other online realities? Yes, that's such an important question. So the digital divide is very real, but we have to look at what we mean by access to the internet uh, and the quality of it. So it is the case that a lot of communities of color don't have access to the internet, but it's the kind of access that we're talking about. So in this day and age, many young people, even people of color, are able to access the internet through their phone. But what is difficult about that is they might not have internet connections that are, you know, ethernet connections within their home. And so that is a level of digital divide that needs to be discussed more thoroughly. So people can access something like Twitter relatively easy, um, easily because you can use uh, your phone, you can use the data connected to your phone, uh, whether or not you have access to Wi-Fi, et cetera. But what makes um, the digital divide so telling is that we've seen in this era of COVID-19, students and young people from disadvantaged communities having to do their homework online outside in a McDonald's parking lot to get access to Wi-Fi and to get access to the websites where their you know, homework is stored, something they can't do from their cell phone. And so I think this is what we need to talk about when we think about the digital divide. Not only just what type of access people have, but also where is that coming from? Are people able to access that in their own home? And to your second point, I do think that there's a question of, or people have thought about um, activism online as somehow slacktivism, somehow less connected to the work that people are doing on the ground. But as we've seen and as our work shows, there's a real connection between the hashtags and the labor that people are doing online to the work that they are doing in their communities on the ground. There isn't um, a divide in that sense uh, as people have um, framed it before. 
So I read an article recently by Jocelyn Keller, who talked about Tumblr feminists and young women strategically making use of social media. And just also in light of some of the things you just said, Moya, do you ever feel that when we talk about hashtag activism, we're really talking about young people's activism? Or are there ways in which older, more established activists can also stay involved? That's such a great question. And for me, this is also a question about platforms. So one thing that we've noticed in our research is that the demographics in terms of age for people who use Facebook are skewed slightly older than the people who use Twitter. And of course, Twitter also skews slightly older than uh, the way young people are using TikTok these days. So I do think that different platforms really pull on different activist communities. And as you mentioned, Tumblr, certainly in the earlier part of, uh, or in twenty the 2010s, was a space for young feminists of color, young disabled feminists. And that demographic has shifted and has tried to find new platforms that, um, speak to them uh, since Tumblr has changed a lot of its policies after being bought out uh, by another corporation. And so I do think that platforms themselves lend to different um, communities. And again, when you think about something like Twitter, Twitter really is a, a gathering place for people across generations. And that I think that's one of the reasons why we found it so compelling in our research as a place to look at hashtags, because you had very young people who were the same age as some of the young people who have been killed by the police. We had people who were older, established activists, all coming together in one space and through a hashtag that united them across these general uh, demographic differences. Speaking of hashtags, and you previously just mentioned women with disabilities, I want to talk to you a little bit about the work of Villisa Thompson, who was a guest on the on the show a while back. Her hashtag, Disability Too White, started to trend on Twitter a number of years ago in response to the lack of diversity in the Oscars. Have you seen people with disabilities or specifically women of color with disabilities making use of hashtags in some of the ways that you've described? Absolutely. And even prior to hashtags, uh, just the way that people are able to leverage social media as a community that can find it very difficult to find each other, uh, there's been such a wonderful outpouring of community being built digitally by disabled folks. So one project that I know about that was even, that predates Twitter uh, in terms of its really robust community forming ability was uh, the Zola Project, which was a space mm-hmm. for disabled queer women of color to talk to one another. And for a lot of them, this was their first opportunity to meet other disabled queer people of color because as with some other types of identity Um, Some people are the only disabled person they know in their community or in their family. So the internet really provided an opportunity for people to connect. And so in addition to the hashtag that uh, Melissa Thompson is responsible for creating, 
There's also uh, a whole disability justice movement that has been burgeoning and has largely been fueled and able to grow because of digital activism. So one of the outgrowths of that is something that's happening this summer called Crip Camp, which is uh, a social media response to an accompaniment to the film Crip Camp that is on Netflix. And uh, the late Stacey Park Milburn and Andrea Levant have been responsible for creating this wonderful Sunday series that is bringing disabled people together to talk about their issues through social media. And in light of COVID response, I think it's such a timely and uh, beautiful project that allows people to connect through, to connect digitally in ways they might not have thought they could before. And of course, we had the co-directors of Crip Camp on the show before. So if you need some podcast listening, I hope you'll check out that previous episode of The Pulse and check out their conversation about Crip Camp. But for now, I'm speaking to Moya Bailey, who is the co-author of Hashtag Activism and an assistant professor at Northeastern University. Moya, we've just got a few minutes left. And so I want to talk to you about the messy but necessary work of being an ally. And one of the words that's, one of the terms that's cropped up in response to Black Lives Matter is this term called performative allyship, where uh, people feel that you need to go a bit further than just making empty gestures. How has social media allowed for substantial allyship? Have you seen instances where it's been done well? Have you seen instances where allyship has gone off the rails? Oh, great question. And again, uh, I encourage folks to check out the book because we discuss this at length and we have a whole chapter where we're talking specifically about allyship and some of the allyship hashtags that were created by allies with the hopes of supporting other communities. One of those hashtags was Priming Well White, uh, which was initially supposed to invite white people to see the differential experiences they have with the police that are very uh, far away from the experiences of people of color. But unfortunately, the way that that hashtag mostly ended up working was white people kind of celebrating the fact that they were able to get away with things that people of color could not. Uh, But a form of allyship that we saw that was really powerful was Elon White's use of the hashtag empty chair And uh, if you'll recall, there was uh, an article talking about the victims of Bill Cosby, Mm -hmm. and they put um, several of the victims in chairs on the cover of this magazine, but there was one chair that was empty, which was representing the women who felt like they could not come forward and people that we did not know. And so Elon James was very moved by this, Elon James White, uh, the comedian, and in Being moved by this, he opened up his direct messages to allow women to share their stories privately so people could direct message him on Twitter and he would post their story anonymously. And it was so powerful because so many women felt like they could finally share their story of sexual assault, sexual harassment that they perhaps wouldn't have if they hadn't had the cover of this important famous celebrity male ally who was willing to 
put himself out there in that way and use his uh, Twitter handle in that way. So that was a really wonderful example of allyship that wasn't performative. And it was really led by uh, women who had written the empty chair article and had really given um, Elon James White the kind of the kind of base from which to move forward with the kind of accomplice or being an accomplice that people really valued. Mm-hmm. Moya, Moya Bailey, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Moya Bailey, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Culture, Societies and Global Studies and the Program in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Northeastern University. She recently co-authored Hashtag Activism with Sarah J. Jackson and Brooke Foucault-Wells. If you missed any of our conversation, you can always find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. As we wrap up here today, I just want to talk about the importance of social media in allowing people from disenfranchised communities to have a voice in public discourse. And of course, the importance of being an ally to people from marginalized communities. If you'd like to hear more from me, I'll have a lot more to say. So please head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pub. I'd like to thank Moya Bailey for being my guest on the program. Nisreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio, with special thanks to Paula Deneen, technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening, and have a wonderful rest of your day. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Juhita Gupta. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.